Morning. I feel pretty special this morning being a pastor's college student gets to preach about the covenants when we baptize all these babies. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter three verses twelve through eighteen. You can also follow along on the screen behind me. This is Paul, he's writing to the church at Corinth, and this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So our passage this morning begins with a conclusion, and so we'll have to back up a little bit to understand Paul's if you. Paul's hope. If you remember, about a month ago, Dave Abusar preached to us from this chapter, from the first 11 verses. And at the beginning of his sermon, he summarized the references to the covenant, the old and new covenants. And we're going to examine those differences further this morning so we can understand uh, this hope that Paul has. The first contrast that we have between the old covenant and the new covenant is the place of the law. The law, which is referred to in verse 3 as the tablets of stone, consisted of the Ten Commandments and other civic and ceremonial laws. It was given to Moses on Mount Sinai to establish a covenant with the Israelites. This covenant was the old covenant, and it was initiated by God and gave the terms of agreement, so to speak. The Lord God would bless and protect his people if they obeyed and kept his commands. The people didn't deserve this charity or kindness from God, but he chose them to be his own. These commands were written on tablets of stone. They were engraved, and they were perfect and holy and good commands. So the law was external, kind of like the laws of our land. And they were written down in words. They were to be read, reviewed, uh, but not revised. They were written in stone. However, in the new covenant, the law has a new location, and it's in our hearts. So the covenant through Jesus Christ, provided something that was drastically different. Through the work of the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus, the perfect and holy commands of God could be written on our hearts. So now inside of us, there's a propensity, there's an inclination not to rebel against God, as is the case with our sinful nature, but to obey God and His law through the work of the Holy Spirit. So though our rebellious nature never leaves us, God has given us a desire to obey the law because he has written it in the very core of our being. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit who writes the law on our hearts. Now remember that you cannot obey God, you cannot please him if you do not have faith. So it doesn't matter, as we just observed, if you baptize your baby. We've seen this, this was clear, that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring someone to faith in Christ. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church your whole life. It doesn't matter if... There is a covenant family succession of seven generations in your family. It is the work of the Spirit, and those who who do not have the Spirit, those who don't have faith, they cannot please God. 
God shows no partiality, but will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And it is a great mercy to know the power of the Holy Spirit to change us, to give us genuine, joyful obedience in the commands of God. So as you can imagine, this is immensely valuable for us as we seek to obey God. Without this, we would just strive and endeavor to please God, never being able to do so. The law would only antagonize our sinful hearts. So this is one of the glorious benefits of the new covenant in Christ as opposed to the old covenant given through Moses. But not only did the old covenant give hope, give help to its adherents to obey the law, it also brought death and condemnation. So with reference to our judicial standing before God, this covenant, the old covenant, actually administered judgment. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So it's clear what God's holy standard is for those under the law, that they were to obey it in every way and at every point. So all men have broken God's covenant. And at this point, some of you say, well, that's fine. Uh, I don't ever remember making a covenant with God uh, to keep his law. And so I don't know that I'm actually bound to do any of it. In fact, I don't even know what it is. And that may be true that you've not read about Moses and all the commandments, but you do know the law of God because you have a conscience. Paul says elsewhere that the Gentiles who do not have the law do it anyways because it's written within them. So your conscience might accuse you or excuse you when you're facing temptation to break one of God's commands. And you have guilt inside, so it's deep inside of you and you can't get away from it. Sure, you've sinned against your conscience and maybe you've suppressed it by sinning against it over and over, but it never fully leaves you. I remember one time when I was a young boy, I was sitting in the kitchen with my friend at our little orange and yellow play school picnic table and my mom was standing there doing the dishes and my friend and I were playing and he kind of whispered over to me and uh, dared me to say a curse word in front of my mom and I knew though my mom had never said this that it would be wrong for me uh, to say this in front of my mom and uh, it was very clear I saw the temptation so I made up some little story so that I could incorporate this word. And the whole time I knew that it was wrong. And I was trying to justify why I would say it. But under peer pressure, I said it and got soap in the mouth. And my mom's here this morning, so you can thank her afterwards. Um, but I knew that I was guilty. I knew before I did it, mom didn't have to say, don't say that word. I knew it was wrong. And so my conscience bore witness and it disturbed, it was disturbed by my sin. And so this is a testimony of God's law, that if you obey him, your conscience is clear. But if you do not obey him, and you offend your conscience, you have broken God's law. And so all men, those who know the letter of the law, or those who don't, are still condemned. None have fully kept it and obeyed God, even to the slightest degree. But Paul goes on in Galatians to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So this is the glorious new covenant in Christ's own body and blood. Jesus was cursed for us. He was cursed on our behalf 
And not only was he cursed and killed, but he rose up from the dead. He rose up from the grave and he would give eternal life to all those who would obey him and believe in him by his spirit. Scripture says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That's Paul in verse six. He goes on to say, for the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant had glory. Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. And so this is the hope that Paul has. He sees that while the old covenant in Moses was perfect, all the commands were good. Yet those alone didn't have the ability to actually give men life and eternal life. It condemned them because they were rebellious, because we were rebellious and stiff-necked. So Paul has hope, as he's seen the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Corinthians, that they themselves are a letter of Christ. This is the work that the Spirit did in their lives. So this is why Paul has such a hope. He's looking ahead. He's trusting that they will be changed into the image of Jesus and will attain eternal salvation. And so as you know, hope is looking ahead. It's looking forward, looking to something that's in the future. And when you have hope, you live in light of the thing that you're hoping for, right? So if you're waiting for a package, you might watch at the window to see if the mailman comes or open up the front door to see if it's arrived on the front porch, right? You have hope. You live in light of the thing you're hoping for. But you never wait in anticipation for something if you've already got what you want. And so what is it that you hope for? What is it that you look forward to some of us uh it's summer right summer the weather gets nice maybe we're done with school there are less activities going on and so we look to summer as a type of salvation how many of you have already thought or are excited uh, about the usa brazil game this morning but it's going to go out in the afternoon right a couple of hands go up you're waiting in anticipation i'm glad you're here at the second service and not the first so you could have time to prepare. But there are many things that we put our hope in, right? We look ahead to graduating high school or college. We look ahead to the next cool, hip Apple gadget that's going to come out. What about getting married? Is that your hope? Or maybe it's once you're married, it's for children. And you're hoping your children is really so that you hope that they turn out better than you did. And so where is your hope? Jonathan Edwards prays, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And so when you look to the future, do you see far enough ahead to get a glimpse of heaven or hell? Do you look to eternity and see that all of you, Every one of us will come before God and face judgment. You'll come before God and you'll have nothing. Except if you believe on Christ and you'll have his blood. And so this is hope. It's looking ahead to see that Jesus purchased our salvation and that we don't trust in the world or the things in the world. We look ahead to make heaven our home and we make sure that this place is not our home and so we see that this is the hope 
And this hope, then, is not isolated. It's not just that we look to heaven, but it has produced a result in us now. And Paul says that those who have this hope have great boldness in their speech. And But to help define and distinguish this boldness, he continues that uh, Paul and his fellow uh, laborers are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So Paul here is referring to the account in Exodus 34. Moses has come down from the mountain. He's brought the two tablets of the law. Previously, he'd been up on the mountain with God in the very presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights without water and without food. And so when he came down, he had the stone tablets with him and his face shone. It emanated light. And so the people were afraid to come near him. They knew that if anyone saw God, that they would die. And so seeing that Moses had been with God on the mountain, seeing his face glowing, they were afraid. So Moses called the elders to him and got their trust. And then they called the people. And so Moses then spoke the words of the covenant to the people as his face shone. Remember that these were glorious commands and they were accompanied by bountiful promises and dreadful curses. The light radiating from his face testified of the purity and the perfection of the law. And so what did Moses do? Scripture says that he veiled his face. Now why, if Moses had the law, had the glory of the law shining from his face, would he not want at all times for the people to see the face, his face glowing and to remember all of the covenant promises that God had given him, to remember all the commands, to recall those as he walked through the camp, why wouldn't he leave his face glowing before the people? Scripture says that he veiled his face, they hid the glory of the law, and it was fading. So Paul and company use great boldness in their speech because the new covenant will never go away. It's not fading, and it far surpasses the old covenant in glory. It's eternal and will stand forever. Through Christ, and only through Christ, can people come to God. So this is the message of the good news. This is the gospel that we proclaim. This is the gospel that we preach. This past Tuesday at our CNCF Summer Bible Study, we looked at James chapter 3 and talked about his intense description of the tongue. That it is an evil, a restless evil, that it's set on fire, and it sets the course of our life on fire. So I ask the question that if James is so, if he so pointedly accuses the tongue of such great evil, why didn't Jesus say to cut it off and cast it from you if it makes you stumble? Right? Jesus said, cast out your eye if it causes you to stumble. Cut off your hand if it causes you to stumble. Why isn't there some kind of reference to the tongue? And the answer is, is that it's evident that in the Christian life, everything we do is with the tongue, right? Everything we've done this morning, we've sung, we've confessed sin, we've prayed together. All these things have to do with our tongues and proclaiming, and proclaiming God and confessing his name. Proverbs says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And this is certainly true of the gospel and the new covenant of Christ. Our tongues carry not only what we say, but what we don't say. Ezekiel was commanded by God to be a watchman, warning the people of their iniquity before God. Otherwise, their blood would be on his head. 
And so Paul, a messenger, an apostle of the new covenant, says to the Ephesian elders, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul was faithful with the message entrusted to him. He was proclaiming it to everyone in every place. And he, he wasn't just bringing like a new interpretation of the scriptures. He was proclaiming the eternal covenant through God's own son. And how did he do this? He says with great boldness of speech. Now, can you imagine Paul having the revelation of the eternal word of God and just suggesting that people try Jesus, that they give him a chance? One of the problems today with most so-called evangelism is that it presents the gospel as if you can have your cake and eat it too, right? You can uh, have Jesus and find the true purpose for your life, or you can live for God and still fulfill all of your longings for fame and desire and glory. And you can love God and he'll be your best friend, or better yet, uh, your boyfriend, and you can soon find out that actually all of those things that you wanted have to die. All of your lusts will come to an end and that they are to be crucified with Christ and nailed to the cross. Now, some of you came to Jesus this way. You were seeking those things. You were looking for those things. But you found out actually that Jesus calls you to die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him daily. So when the apostles are given the Great Commission with the qualifying statement that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to, the, to Jesus Christ, they preach the gospel with authority. They command, and they command men to repent and to believe the good news. Those who have the gospel have the authority of the very word of God, right? So if you have the gospel, if you have God's word, you have the authority of the word of God, you. You don't have to propose that people consider the reason for God. You don't have to fear that the latest self-help book is going to have something better to say. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So you're not Paul, but preach the gospel. Proclaim it with authority. By the grace of God, you are what you are. I am what I am. Stephen is what Stephen is. Gandalf is what Gandalf is. God has given us different grace, but he's all entrusted us with the same message of the gospel. And we have the authority by the word of God to proclaim it. And it's not just that we proclaim it boldly and that we're brash, but we're also very clear. Moses veiled the law, but God has lifted the veil through Christ. The gospel is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It's a mystery revealed, so you want to make it known, right? You want to open up the meaning of the gospel as much as possible. And so you don't just want to say with authority that God will forgive you. 
what will God forgive you? Well, God will forgive your sin. What is your sin? Well, God will forgive your sin against him. What is your sin against him? You have to be absolutely positively clear about the rebellion against God, that they have spurned his testimony, whether in the scriptures or by ignoring their consciences and the testimony of nature. And it should be easy if you wrestle with your own sin, right? You know your own sin, you know your own heart. And so you can direct your conversation that reveals your sin, but also reveals their sin as well. If you want something else, start with the Ten Commandments. There's still a tutor to teach us, to lead us to Christ. They do condemn a man, but we trust that the Spirit gives life. And so be clear about the wrath and the judgment of God. Be clear about mercy being found only in Christ. Be clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, who cleanses us, who gives us help. And don't be ashamed. Do you think that Moses was ashamed when he had the glory of the law emanating from his face? And yet we know that the new covenant is far surpassing in glory. We know that it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So when we all stand before God, and those who trust in Christ will not be put to shame. We can think of the judgment day. We can understand and see that on that day we will be justified through Christ. We trust that those who deny Christ will be put to shame. And all their mocking and scoffing will be brought low. So this is the boldness that is rooted in the new, in the new covenant. These things, the authority and clarity and shamelessness that we have, are all evident in Paul's letters. This is how he talks. He commands, he rebukes, he casts out, he clarifies, he explains. And he does all these things without apologizing. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. He says it very clearly. He says it authoritatively, and that's the word of God that we have. And however, as it is the case with the gospel and was the case with Moses, that some will be hardened to this declaration. Not everyone's just going to believe you. And to this I say to those who often sit in these seats, that you hear the, God, the word of God. And maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe uh, you've been here longer than I have. And like the children of Israel, you had the Word of God. It was written on stones. It was clear. It was plain. It was before you. You heard of God's mercy towards sinners. You've seen sinners repent. You've seen them even confess their sin to you and be humble. You understand the substance of the faith. You can recite the Westminster Confession. But there's no evidence of the purifying work of the Holy Spirit to make you like Christ. You have no power or no genuine love. And you don't know the grace of God. And you keep trying hard and you're trying to fake it. But God knows that you're faking it. God knows when you sing, but it's not in your heart. God knows when you don't savor the sweet name of Jesus. God knows when your heart is empty when you give him praise. And so you might have the power in your pride to live uprightly and to fool everyone else, but you're not fooling God. And so to you I say, turn from your hearing with your ears and hear with your heart. Confess that you've been pretending and humble yourself before God. 
call in his name that he would get the glory and that you'd be a fool for Christ's sake. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so can you confess before men that you've been pretending? Can you confess, be humble and say, I have not called on the name of Jesus, but I am now. I was pretending before, but now I do proclaim him. I do profess him. See Christ. See the beauty of his forgiveness. Look to him. Now, some of you uh, have family and friends who profess to be Christians, and yet you have reason to be skeptical of their profession. They're similar to the man I described. They attend church regularly, and uh, they can repeat the simple truths of the faith. But when difficulties come, they don't turn to Christ. They have their worldly wisdom. And sometimes they even justify uh, their disobedience. And it's clear that they're rebelling against God. And so many of you, you encourage them, you exhort them, and they still seem hardened. In fact, sometimes you do use great boldness in your speech with them, and you must. And I th- I'm so thankful for those of you who do that, who testify, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when you know you run the risk of losing that relationship, but you fear God and not man. You fear that on Judgment Day they'll come before God not having heard that they should turn from their sin. And so keep it up. I know who many of you are. I've talked with you, even recently. So be unashamed of the gospel. If anyone turns from the Lord, the veil is taken away. Lastly, some of you see that you don't have much hope at all because you see that there's not much boldness in your witness for Christ. And this could be the case in many places in many ways. It could be in your own family. It could be at work. It could be with your friends. And that you don't proclaim Christ, that you don't confess Him that you see them sinning and going off and destroying their lives, you don't say anything at all. And so you see that if you don't have this boldness to proclaim Christ, that you're lacking in hope and that you don't have hope. And if you don't have hope, that's a pretty scary thing because God has, through the new covenant, give us great hope to obey Him, to love Him, to see Him. So the mystery of the new covenant is that Jesus, the Son of God, is unveiled before our eyes so that we would see His glory. So it's not for nasal gazing. It's not to dwell on your sin. It's not to dwell on the fact that you haven't professed Christ. It's to look to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So this is the wonder of the new covenant, that we see the perfect God in perfect man, the Son of God, the Lord of glory. This is the call of Christians. It says, but we all with unveiled face, right? We know that we're full of sin, but that's why we look to Christ. We're careful to watch him. We look to him continually, not looking at our own sin, but looking to him. We are reminded of Paul's testimony that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord, 
the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those are the words given to Moses as they stood in the cleft and the Lord passed by. So will you let the Lord hide you in the cleft and will you look and wait and see his glory? This is the vision that we have before us. We have Jesus Christ revealed as the Son of God. He came as a man, lived humbly, died for us, is exalted to the right hand of God, and there he sits. And so look to him. He's in heaven. Don't look at your sin. Look to Christ. This is the vision that we have before us. This is Christ before us. And this is how we obey him. This is how we know him. I want to say a a final word to those who don't have faith in Christ. And you've heard a lot about that this morning. This is for you who've heard the truth over and over, but continue to reject it. The scriptures are very clear about this. The writer of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May you be found in Christ on that day. Pray with me.